It is uh, awesome to be with you. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team. And as uh, these guys said, what a, a fun day to celebrate baptisms together. I also bring you greetings this morning from Redemption Arcadia. Uh, Redemption Arcadia is one of our 10 congregations across Redemption. I was there last week. They had invited me to kind of do some team teaching with Frank, their lead pastor. And so uh, it was fun to be there, um, fun to just see the, the work that God's doing across Redemption. And wasn't it great to have Josh Butler with us last week? Um, our I guess not that great. It was fine. I don't know. You're like, man, last week. I don't remember back that far. Anyway, uh, he's one of the pastors at Redemption Tempe. And uh, yeah, just a blessing to be kind of part of this uh, larger connected thing. And, and all the Redemption congregations, all 10 of us, are studying through the Gospel of John. We started it in the fall of 2020, uh, took a few breaks here and there. But when it's all said and done, we'll finish up right before Easter. When it's all said and done, we'll do about 60 sermons in the Gospel of John. And of those 60 sermons, today's is the shortest passage. Next week, we'll look at uh, chapter 19, verses 1 to 27, right? It's like this long chunk. And a lot of the passages have been like that. They've been these long chunks. And yet here we are today looking at just these kind of two, three verses, two and a half really, because we kind of covered the first part of 38 last week. And so it might raise the question, well, well why? Like, what? Couldn't we just get through this a little faster if we covered some big, you know, bigger chunk? Like, why, why would we devote this much time to just these two verses? Why would we do that? Well, uh, there's a couple reasons. The first is that this is a story that's recorded in all four Gospels, which is actually unusual. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, theologians call that, those the synoptic Gospels. And the synoptic Gospels have a lot of the same content. They still have the same stories, uh, same teaching, and not exactly the same, but they, they all kind of have a real similar sort of feel to them. John's Gospel is a little bit different. And because of that, uh, and John probably almost certainly wrote his Gospel knowing that everyone else had already had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's the last one to write it. So he's kind of going, I don't need to repeat everything. I don't need to tell you all this stuff you already know. I'm going to kind of give you my first person angle. I was an eyewitness to this stuff. I was in the room where it happened on a ton of it. Let me just tell you how it goes. And so for John to include this story means it must really matter. He knows we already know about it. There's a bunch of stuff in, in the, that doesn't show up in all four Gospels, but this does. So that makes it important. But I think the, the reason that this is worth just pausing this week to just fo focus on these few verses is because in this story, we see the heart of the gospel. We are a gospel people. We will sometimes say we're a gospel-centered church. And the word gospel, if you're new to this, just simply means this, good news. Good news. We believe the gospel is news, not advice. A lot of time you get into church, you get into religion, and you kind of think, oh, this is all kind of about advice, how to be a little bit better, how to be more kind, how to be more loving, how to be more righteous, how to stop, you know, the bad stuff that I'm doing. And, and, and all that's, I guess, fine, but the gospel's better than that. The gospel's not advice, it's news. Here's what happened. And at the heart of that news is substitution. Jesus dying in our place, taking our sins, us experiencing the life that he deserves, him experiencing the death that we deserve. Substitution is at the heart of the gospel, and I think this passage is such a beautiful picture of it. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at this and, and just kind of hold up this 
this truth of substitution and look at it and ponder it and reflect on what it means for us. So uh, pray with me and, and we'll get into it. Father, uh, thank you for news. Lord, when I've tried to live my life by advice, I start strong. I come out of the gate really well, and then it's not uh, very long at all before I run out of steam. And so, Lord, I need news. I need news that's good, news that, that somebody somewhere else has done what I could never do. And Lord, that's what we believe you've done, and that's what we believe this passage is about. And so, Lord, uh, whether we're coming at this uh, totally brand new or whether we're familiar with the gospel story, God, either way, I pray that this would uh, hit us in a fresh way, that you'd pour out your spirit even right now, that we could see the heart of the gospel. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So uh, Pilate, who is this uh, Roman governor and mostly is in charge of keeping the peace, uh, right before this, he's been talking uh, to Jesus, trying to kind of figure out what he's all about. And uh, if you have your Bible, you can uh, grab it. Again, we're at the end of uh, John chapter 18. And in this conversation, the key issue really is, has Jesus said that he's a king? Because if Jesus is claiming to be a king, and if Jesus is also doing the things that most people claiming to have that kind of authority would do, then that would be a threat to the Roman government. And so Pilate is asking him, so are you a king? And Jesus basically says, yes, I'm a king, but I'm not a king like all the other kings. My kingdom doesn't have the same genesis as the rest of the kings. If it did, then I would pick up swords and we'd fight just like everybody else. But we're not a kingdom of fighting, we're a kingdom of truth. And so Pilate comes out at the end of verse 38, and it says he went back outside to the Jews, and he told them, I find no guilt in him. In other words, this guy's not a problem. He's not trying to overthrow anything. He's not, he's not trying to build up some violent insurrection. He, he's, he's, he's no problem. I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, it's so interesting here because Pilate has the authority. He could just say, hey, I find no guilt in them. Show over. We're done. But for whatever reason, we don't fully understand it. A Pilate says, well, maybe we could have him be the one that we always release, right? And this is interesting. Uh, you know, Pilate's a politician. So it's not surprising that the politician is the one who asks, what is truth? politicians aren't speaking the language of truth very often. They don't care about truth. They care about expediency. They care about what works. Keep that in mind before you give your heart to a politician. Truth isn't a thing. It's what, what, what feels right to the crowd. That's what it's about. That's the language of politics, not truth. And so Pilate, for some reason, is going, you know what, maybe this would work out well, because the Jews, they have this custom. Every Passover, we let someone go. We kind of issue a pardon. Uh, you know, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. He's saying he's the king of the Jews. I've heard something about him. He must be pretty popular. I mean, everywhere he goes, it seems like big crowds follow. So, hey, this will be awesome, because not only will I be able to kind of let him off the hook, but then I'll get credit for being so generous by saying, hey, this is the guy we release. This is the guy we pardon. So he cooks up this idea. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And he fully expects that the answer will be, yes, give us Jesus. And he is shocked, probably, when in verse 40, they cry out again, not this man, but Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. 
We want Barabbas. John adds Barabbas was a robber. That word could also be translated an insurrectionist. He's described this way in Matthew as a notorious prisoner. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that he had committed murder in the insurrection. In Luke, it says he had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So basically, I mean, depending on your perspective, right? If you're kind of against the occupation, he's a freedom fighter. If you're more suspicious of that, you say, no, he's really a terrorist. He's a notorious prisoner, committed murder. That's who this guy is. Jesus is the one. He's been out healing people. He's been out teaching people. He's raised the dead. He's fed thousands. I mean, surely they're going to want him, right? He's the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. They say, no, give us Barabbas. Now, in Mark's gospel, the Pilate then asks, well, what should I do with Jesus? And that's where they shout, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas. Another interesting thing about Barabbas, you know what the word Barabbas means? Barabbas' name means this, son of a father. His name might as well be Guy. <laughs> right? Son of a father. Well, isn't everybody. And in that, I think that really was his name. I don't think these four gospel writers have made up a new name for him, but it's interesting because if I think some of what that tells us is actually Barabbas is this stand-in for every other human on earth. He's this representative son of a father. And in a way, you could say, well, you know what? All the rest of the sons of the father, fathers have been like Barabbas. What is Barabbas? Barabbas is someone saying, I need freedom. I need power. I need authority. I need control. I want to overthrow this other authority, this other kingdom, and I want my kingdom. And he's willing to kill for it. And that is what is in the heart of every human being. Only we're not trying to overthrow an earthly government. We're trying to overthrow God, the king. We think we know what will give us freedom. We think we know what will give us joy. We think we know what will give us power. We think we know what will give us all the things that we're longing for. And we will fight to get it. We will overthrow it to get it. We will kill God to get it. You say, well, wait, wait I'm not a murderer. Okay. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if anyone has ever hated another person, they've already committed murder in their heart. Oh, dang it. Jesus got me again. And so get this. Guilty Barabbas goes free. Innocent Jesus goes to the cross. Substitution. The guilty son of a father who thought he was fighting for freedom goes free so that the innocent, true son of the Father would die to bring actual freedom. This is a substitution. And, and don't miss this. Don't miss this. Jesus is died, is, it dies, is crucified between two other crosses. There's the third cross. He's the cross in the middle. Who was that cross for? Barabbas. 
And I just have to kind of imagine, if I just try to put myself in this situation and go, imagine, what was Barabbas feeling? If you, if you talk to uh, chaplains and other people who've worked with folks on death row, they'll say that they will often, those who uh, were executed by hanging, will often kind of tug at their neck a lot. Um, those who experience gas chamber type dynamics would often practice holding their breath. They think about it. They visualize it. They go, okay, this is coming. This is coming. This is coming. Barabbas, he's a notorious prisoner. He's not getting out. You have to think that there were days that he might have just kind of held his hands as he thought about the nails that would go into them. And I just wonder what was running through his head and how his heart might have began to race when he's sitting in his cell and he knows it's this big weekend and everyone's there and the Romans are going to show a big show of force and he hears Barabbas, we're coming your way. Don't you have to think that his heart started racing? He started thinking, okay, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. And he can hear the crowd roaring. And he's thinking, oh man, this is it, this is it, this is it. The moment I've been fearing, the moment I've been dreading, here it comes. And he stands there and they say, we want Barabbas! And he's set free. Now, I don't know what he did after that. Wouldn't you love to know? Wouldn't you love to know, like, where did he go? Did he just kind of, you know, get back in with the terrace cell and go, all right, let's keep planning? Or, or what did he do? I, I just, part of me just imagines, part of me just wonders again, there's no verse for this. I don't know that this happened. This is, I'm making this up, okay? This is First Fleshalonians uh, 3.16. I don't have, right? But I just am kind of wondering, like, what if, just what if, and again, I'm not saying it happened, but what if Barabbas steps down into the crowd and begins to watch this man, Jesus, as then he's whipped and scourged, as then in a few moments, Pilate will bring him back out with a crown of thorns and a robe of purple. Is it possible that maybe Barabbas followed Jesus, as he was hauling his cross toward the hill of the skull? Is it possible that maybe Barabbas saw the beam go into the ground and get raised up? I don't know if that happened at all, but if it did, you know what would have been going through Barabbas' head? That should have been me. Friends, that's the heart of the gospel. Right, it's Super Bowl. You can't have nachos without cheese. You can't have wings without chicken. You can't have guacamole without avocados. I know everybody's trying to do all this fake food. It's fake food. You can't, you can't do that. And you can't have the gospel without substitution. This is it. This is the core message. This is what it's about. Theologian John Stott said it this way. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's exactly right. We have been the insurrectionists. We have been the freedom fighters. And we've fought for our own freedom with our own power and our own strength. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And God, in his great mercy, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, sent Christ to be a substitute for us. 
That's what this is about. That's the message of the cross. This is why John has written this book. He told us, this is what it's about. I want you to know this and believe it so that by believing you might have life in his name. And so it shouldn't surprise us then to think, okay, if this is the major theme of the gospel, then we should have seen it at lots of different places throughout the Bible. And in fact, that's true. And so I want to take a little Bible bath. We do Bible baths from time to time. And I want you to see that this image of substitution, it's not a fluke. It's core to the message of the scriptures. First, we see that Jesus is the substitute who covers our shame. Adam and Eve are there in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. They're enjoying God. Everything is good. And God even says, no, this is very good. There's an amazing little phrase in Genesis chapter 2 at the end. It says, they were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, that's just kind of a foreign idea to us. We can't imagine being that exposed, that vulnerable, that seen. And yet there they are. And they're comfortable in their own skin. And they're, and they're comfortable with who they are. They're comfortable with how God's made them. They're relating to one another in this place of ease and this place of rest, not a place of tension and competitive and judgment and, and shame. There's none of that there. And, and they're enjoying God. And God said, hey, listen, you can eat of anything and we're just gonna keep enjoying the heck out of this reality. I just want you to not do one thing. Would you not eat of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Don't eat from that because on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So Genesis 3 comes, they're tempted, they eat the fruit, and they had to be thinking, uh-oh, he told us on the day we eat of this, we'll surely die. We're goners. And so they start hiding from God. But, but they can't just hide from God in their nakedness. They have to do something about the nakedness first. So what they do is they take these fig leaves. If you've ever seen fig leaves, they're kind of, the, you know, three big leaves. And I'm imagining the Garden of Eden had them like in size, you know, double X, right? And so what you can do actually, if, if you had it large enough, is you could sort of step into it, pull the middle up and wrap the sides around, and you'd have a nice little pair of uh, fig leaf undies, you know, like... <laughs> And so that's probably what's going on. And so they're covering their shame and they're hiding from God. And so God has to come and says, hey, where are you? And they're thinking, like Barabbas. Uh-oh, this is the moment. He said, on the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Uh-oh. And God says, come here. And then we read this in Genesis 3.21. This is right there at the beginning of sin. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Notice, it doesn't say garments of wool. It says garments of skins. How do you get a garment of skins? The animal has to die substitution. Adam and Eve are spared because of a substitute. Their shame is covered because of a substitute. God says, I'm not willing to let you continue in this shameful condition. I'm going to cover you and I'm going to send a substitute in your place. And what I want to tell you today is that Jesus is the substitute who covers our shame. Jesus is the one who dies naked and ashamed on the cross so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and wholeness. 
so that we don't have to be defined by our insecurities and our mistakes and what we've done and what's been done to us, but instead we could be defined by who we are in him. Jesus is the substitute who covers our shame. Here's what else he is. He's the substitute who proves the Father's heart. You keep going into the rest of Genesis, and what you find is that God realizes there's this huge problem, and I'm going to create a nation that's going to address this problem. And so he calls Abraham, and he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to have descendants as many as the stars in the sky, and through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Only one problem. Abraham and Sarah can't have a kid. She's barren. They get older and older and older, and they keep hoping and hoping and hoping. And it's like, how is God going to fulfill this promise if we can't have a baby? And then finally, one day in their very old age, Isaac is born. And you just have to imagine the joy as Isaac came into the world. Oh, finally, some of you have had the experience of waiting for a long time to have a baby, and that, that baby comes into your home, uh, whether by birth or by adoption, and it's like, yes, oh, yes, this feels right. This is good. This is awesome. And so this baby starts to grow, and Isaac at some point becomes an adolescent, probably around 12 or so years old. And God comes to Abram and says, the unthinkable. Hey, Abram, here's what I want. I want you to take Isaac up a hill and sacrifice him. And I don't know what was going through Abraham's head. You can only imagine, but he says, okay. So they gather up the wood, and they gather up the rope, and they start to head up the mountain, and Isaac, the 12-year-old, goes, hey, Dad, it uh, feels like we're missing something. Um, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And they get up the hill, and they build the altar. By the way, do you, know what, do you know where the hill is? The hill is Jerusalem. They go up that hill. They make the altar. They tie him up. You got to think at this point, Isaac's like, uh, Dad, I thought you said that God was going to provide. And I think at some point, Abraham would have said, he will. So he takes the knife. And he raises it. And right at that moment, here's what it says in Genesis chapter 22. God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. He went on to name that place, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And on that mountain, God calls out, Abraham, stop. I know that you love me because you've not withheld your son, your only son whom you love from us, from me. And now we, because of what Jesus did hundreds of years later, on that same mountain, we look up to God and say, God, we know you love us. Because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. This is the gospel. Jesus dies in our place, proves that the Father loves us. So many of us, we grow up thinking, at best, God's going to tolerate us. Friends, when you see the Lord face to face, his eyes will sparkle with delight in you. And I know that 
because he paid the highest price to win your heart. He loves you. Jesus is also the substitute who sets us free. Hundreds of years later, these descendants of Abraham and Isaac are enslaved in Egypt. There they are, and they're there, and they can't get out, and they're crying out to the Lord, and the Lord eventually delivers them, and he does it by telling them, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a, a, a lamb, an unblemished lamb that's three years old, uh, usually one that had kind of lived with them for about three years, kind of a precious sort of pet-like lamb, and I want you to sacrifice that lamb. And here's what it says in Exodus 12. You shall take some of the blood and put it on the two door posts and the lintels of the house in which you eat it. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. How does God set them free? Through the blood of the lamb. <laughs> Friends, I don't know how to connect the dots more clearly, right? When, when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist says, ah, Behold, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Jesus sets us free by being the Lamb in our place. Here's the next thing we see as we go through the Scriptures. As Jesus is the substitute who takes away our sins. After the people are set free from Egypt, they wander through the wilderness. They eventually end up in the land that we now know of as the land of Israel. And they have a tabernacle, and they have a temple, and they have this whole system of worship. And uh, on the Day of Atonement, our Jewish friends uh, celebrate that now. They call it Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement, there were all these sacrifices and all these things to happen. But here's a really interesting detail of what would happen on the, on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, it says that they would get a, a live goat. And it says this, and Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat. Come here, you little goat. Right, holding the head of the goat. You think the goat's squirming. Hands on the head. And he will confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who's in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Have you ever heard of a scapegoat? That's where it comes from. And don't you just imagine the feeling of relief, as you've just heard the high priest, the holy man in Israel say all these disgusting things that you've been doing and everyone around you has been doing. And you didn't even think he knew about that stuff. But there he is confessing it publicly. And the relief you would feel as you watched the goat walk away. There go your sins. There goes your guilt. There it goes. And notice where it goes. Over and over it says, into the wilderness, into the wilderness. Where was Jesus crucified? Yes, in Jerusalem, but not quite. Over and over the gospel writers tell us he was crucified outside the city in the wilderness. 
Jesus is the substitute who also gives healing and peace and righteousness. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We are wounded. We are sinful. We are in turmoil. We are unrighteous. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so it says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the exchange. This is the substitution. The one who knew no sin was treated as if he was the worst sinner ever. He was treated as Barabbas. So that in him, we who are unrighteous might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Here's what Peter's saying. Peter did go to the cross and he did see Jesus hanging there. And he didn't say, that was Barabbas' cross. He says, that was my cross. He is bearing my sins in his body on the tree so that I could die to sin and live to righteousness. This is what God wants to give you. God wants to heal your broken heart. God wants to heal your broken relationships. He wants to bring peace. He wants to bring the absence of fighting with him and the presence, the shalom, the wholeness of God. He wants to bring righteousness and truth and justice and beauty and what is good and right and beautiful. He wants that in you and it comes through Christ. Why? Because finally Jesus is the substitute who brings us to God. All of that is available in God. And here's what it says in 1 Peter 3.18, for God or for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the gospel. This is the substitution. Your sins forgiven, your shame walked away, set free, whole, this is what's offered. So the question becomes, will you receive it? Will you receive it? Now again, I, you can tell I kind of got carried away by some of my imaginings. But one of the things I was imagining as I was thinking about this story is, what if Barnabas, or not Barnabas, what if Barabbas was like, no thanks, I don't want it. Right, you have to think he probably sort of skipped down those steps. Like, wow, I was not, this day is going better than I expected. I'll be good, right? What if instead he's like, nope, I'm not going. No, Jesus, you go. Now, there might be reasons he might do that. He might just go, well, you know, that'll show him. Maybe that's the heart of an insurrectionist. I don't know. Uh, maybe another thing he would do would be just to go like, you know what? No, I'm too bad. I, I deserve it. I really don't deserve it. I, I can't. But, but, but for whatever reason, just imagine what would have happened if he'd have been like, no, I'm not. I'm not going free. Here's what would have happened. They'd have said, let's make a fourth cross. It got me thinking, man, does this ever happen? And in fact, it has. So, you know, we all know that at the end of presidential terms, there's always like this, you know, the, all the pardons that happen. Well, there's only one time in American history 
where a pardon was not received. In 1833, there was a guy named George Wilson. Uh, he organized this whole scheme to attack the kind of U.S. mail system, right? Which we hear that and we're like, what, he got mad at the post office? Like, he went, he was the first guy to go postal. Okay. <laughs> Right, but it seems like he actually organized this whole thing to kind of attack, and they were like, it was very life-threatening. I don't know that anyone actually died, but it was like this kind of big terrorist act on the, the early mail system in 1833. And so he was sentenced to death. It was a capital offense, a federal offense, capital offense. And so Andrew Jackson, who was the president, pardoned him. And he said, no. Now, we don't have any, I, I couldn't find any record of why he said no. I, I don't know what it was, but he said no. I'm not going to be pardoned. And this becomes a big kind of question. So now this legal question, well, what do we do with this, right? Because should the, gover- you know, should the president, I mean, this is the president offered you a pardon. Does that, is that binding, like whether or not you want it? What, what, is, what happens? So it starts to get argued. Eventually it goes to the Supreme Court. What do you do? When you're offered a pardon, you go, I don't want it. Can you be forced to take it? Here's what Chief John Chief Justice John Marshall said, he said, a pardon is an act of grace, and delivery of the pardon is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on it. And I want to tell you today, you're being offered a pardon, and it's an act of grace. Will you receive it? Someone will die for your sins. And either it's Jesus or it's you. I don't want it to be you. And not only do I not want you to be punished, I want you to know God. I want you to know the freedom and the wholeness and the joy of being in a relationship with the one who made you. I want you to have a new life and a new heart. Will you receive it? So we're going to celebrate here in just a moment is baptisms. There are 10 people across uh, today's services, five in this service, five in the last service, who are being baptized. And what they're doing is they're saying, yeah, I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah, I want it. I trust that Jesus died for my sins. I trust that the old me is buried with him and the new me has been raised with him. That's why a baptism is often pictured as this kind of going under the water and coming out. We've said it this way, that the baptism, this very Queen Creek horse trough thing that we do for the baptism, right? That baptism is like a tomb and a womb. The old person dies with Jesus. The new person's raised with Jesus. That's what this is about. And so we'll listen to their stories and you'll hear stories of people saying, I needed help and I needed God and, and I realized who I was apart from him and I needed him. And then we'll watch them pass through the waters and then we will celebrate and rejoice and delight in these folks who have experienced the substitution of the gospel. But, but, but hold on. Before we get there, what about you? This invitation's for you. Will you receive him? Let's pray.
as we go to the Lord, I want to uh, invite any of you who realize you, you need a substitute. You need a Savior. You need someone to take your place, to take away your sin, to cover your shame, to set you free, to heal you and to give you righteousness, to bring you to God. If you realize that you need that today, I'm going to pray and I just want to invite you to pray like I'm praying. Repeat after me. There's nothing magic about these words, but if these words match the reality of your heart, this is a prayer to confess and to believe in Christ. So you can pray this. God, you are good and you're faithful and you're kind. And I have sinned against you I've disobeyed you. I've done things that I knew I shouldn't. I haven't done some of the things I know I should. And so God, today I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm trusting in Jesus that he died in my place, that my sins were paid for by him. And God, I want to receive the new life that's available. God, I want to surrender to you. I want to follow you. I want Jesus to come into my life and to be my true king. So Father, that is my prayer. That is my desire. God, I still want that. I prayed for that decades ago. I want it again. God, I just want you. Thank you for these folks who are being baptized. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate the new life that you give. And thank you for your abundant and amazing grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.